Hello, welcome to Film is Lit, the podcast where we compare and contrast a piece of literature to its film or TV adaptation. My name is Danny, the film expert. I'm Laura, the literature expert. Laura, my love, that's right, we're a couple. I don't know if you know this by now. They all know. Yep, I can't (laughs) stop talking about it. We have a doozy of an episode. I'll tell you what. Am I right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm we're... a little nervous to get into this. Honestly. Oh yeah, and I was nervous to show you the film because it's it's not easy watching. If you catch uh-huh. my drift, it's a little <laughs> intense. A little. <laughs> um, yeah, the movie is a a Natalie Portman oh, and Oscar say... Isaac picture. And I ain't talking about Star Wars. Mm-mm. Uh-uh. The characters are not Queen Arm- Queen um, Queen Armadillo and Doe Cameron. It's no, no, no. It's a different, and they're not even the same trilogy. Get that thought out of your head. Mm. <laughs> I wasn't even thinking that. I, I had no idea where you're going. <laughs> right. I tend to. I'm. I did sketch in college, not improv. I tend to go off in tangents when I improvise. But anyways. Um, the book and movie in question, the title is Annihilation. Ooh, boy, we have a lot to talk about. And, and wade through. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is, uh, this is heavy. It's a heavy piece. And the book is very hard to crack or decipher. It's very aloof is a good word, Mm -hmm. dreamlike. And the movie itself kind of feels like a dream on top of a dream. Like Mm -hmm. he, like Alex Garland, the writer director kind of adapted it. He's quoted in saying, that's an exact quote. He adapted the screenplay as a dream of the novel, which is just so funny because the novel itself is, impenetrable kind of yeah um and that's kind of uh both a pro but it's also a huge negative too it's hard to really recommend the novel but but at the same time i'm really drawn to it um but let's get to i'm getting ahead of ourselves let's go to personal journeys laura my dear can i just say you look great tonight oh i'm in pajamas that i haven't changed out of i know <laughs> sweatpants hair tied chilling with no makeup on drake yeah. uh that's when uh, you're the prettiest i hope that you don't take it wrong uh, <laughs> all right uh, <laughs> <laughs> um go ahead personal journey with annihilation uh book or movie because you found out about it through me correct yeah, I have a pretty short journey. I mean, I hadn't heard about it, hadn't read a, the book until you found out that it was going to be made into a movie and went and saw it by yourself because you knew that I probably might find it a little intense. Right. <laughs> so when it came out in the theaters long, long time ago in 2017? 18, at February of... 2018 yeah when we weren't on lockdown Uh uh-huh you saw it by yourself yep and so i only read it for the podcast i think this is actually the first book that i've read only because you wanted to cover it on the podcast right so i read it last week and like you said it's a little bit impenetrable i 
had an interesting time reading it, and then watching the movie was very intense. And but you didn't hate either property. No. Good. Didn't hate it. Okay. It's not your genre, <laughs> not your tone. I, not, I I understand yeah, it's, that, but it's not my thing. But hey. We're covering Pride and Prejudice on this Yeah, podcast, well, I mean, this so. is analogous to a situation, yeah, with Pride and Prejudice, not my thing, but we're uh, we're covering it on, on the pod. Jane yeah. Austen, I, I just don't really engage with it. I recognize its value, both, yeah. both as literature and the film adaptations that have come of it. But it's not my my go to thing. Doesn't right. uh, jazz my berries. If right. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't pump my nads. Yeah. So. So uh, yeah. No. So I think that it's one of those things that I will probably appreciate from afar, but I probably won't revisit anytime soon. But yeah. But it was interesting. What is your journey with this book and movie? I want to hear. Yeah. Oh, you want to hear? Uh-huh. <laughs> so I was kind of a passing fan of Alex Garland, who started out as an author. He was a he wrote books before he wrote um, The Beach, which was adapted into a movie, uh, mm-hmm. and he wrote the screenplay for that. The movie wasn't that that great, but then he wrote the screenplay for Twenty Eight Days Later, which is an amazing zombie movie Mm -hmm. Uh, and then he wrote the screenplay for sunshine very underrated underseen sci-fi movie that's great and i kind of knew i i he he was writing in a genre that i liked that kind of that grounded intense Mm sci-fi i I really really like that um and then he he wrote uh dread which came out in 2012 which is just a badass just like it's akin to True Grit, and it's just like a simple, straightforward mm-hmm. movie. And in this case, instead of a Western, it's a futuristic kind of like steampunk mm. uh, movie. It is a very, it's very similar to Die Hard, um, and also a movie that came out the same year Dread came out called The Raid. Um, Dread was actually written before The Raid came out. A lot of people accused Alex Garland of stealing the, the idea for mm. The Raid. Um, it should be mentioned the dread script was written before but so after <laughs> after dread came out um i'm like i'm a huge fan of this guy as a writer and then he wrote and directed his first film ex machina in, which we love in 2015 which love when yeah movie. i yeah it's it's one of my favorites i should say I went into Ex Machina not expecting much cuz i saw the trailer and it kind of looked it was like so what it's a you know a movie about in you know, an artificial intelligence who develops, you know, a conscious, like Mm -hmm. that's very, it's not, that's not a novel idea. But then you watch the movie and it is riveting. It, most of the movie is just like two people or a robot and a person talking in a room and that's it. But it's engaging. The conversations they have is just some of the best dialogue I've, I've ever heard. And after that movie came out, when I was proven wrong of thinking that the movie was going to be you know, pretty standard. I'm like, oh, this guy is something else. So now I went into Annihilation kind of worshiping the ground that Alex Carlin walked on. Um, and I wasn't disappointed by Annihilation on my first watch. However, I will admit my expectations were way too high. Mm-hmm. And I, when I do that, and I've mentioned this before in the podcast, sometimes I tend to do that. 
I can't help but feel a little bit disappointed, and mm. I hate that part of myself. It's a flaw. Uh, it's a flaw in you me. Have to carry around. I, that's the cross that I bear. But yeah, I I don't think the movie Annihilation is perfect. Um, I thought it actually was a little slow when I first watched it in the theaters, but mm. then. I read a review after, and, and the first time I watched it, I got the whole, you know, angle, the self-destruction angle mm-hmm. of it. Like, I got that was trying to say, but then I read a review, an analysis on uh, Collider.com uh, by movie critic Matt Goldberg, and he was talking about how the movie is about self-destruction, but it's also about, in a very, you know, literal, metaphorical sense, uh, cancer. Mm-hmm. And it's like... It's like, what if the earth got cancer is basically mm-hmm. uh, the um, log line for the movie. And I'm like, oh, that actually tracks. And then I watched the movie again and I'm like, okay, now that he pointed this out for me and I'm looking for that, it totally makes sense. And things mm-hmm. started coming in the fold for me. I really appreciated it a lot more. And then when I watched it for my third time with you, I have really come out around to loving it. Now, the caveat is, I still don't think it's a perfect movie. I think it requires multiple viewings. And for people who say that it's not their thing, or say that it's slow, or say that some of the performances are off, or say that some of the dialogue is a little cheesy or poorly written, I understand that. Because there are some... Oh, I was going to say, if you're going to say that you're wrong, I was going to be very attacked. <laughs> oh, no, oh, no, no, no. Just just the opposite. I I think this definitely is a flawed movie. I think the second half is much stronger than the first half. Mm. But, I mean, boy, that second half. Like, what, what, a, what a trip, right? Mm. In those last 20 minutes of the movie, it's almost dialogue-free. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's That's riveting. That's the type of stuff that Alex Garland is really able to provide. He he has that same kind of riveting, haunting energy in the show that he wrote and direct, directed called Devs, mm. was dropped on uh, Hulu or FX on Hulu, but it's the same thing. It's this weird thing. Um, but Devs, also incredible and totally on brand for Alex Garland. Mm. So I'm a huge fan of Alex Garland, but I'm really interested to talk about this because... I I have a lot to say uh, of... He's scrolling through pages of notes. Oh, yeah. I have a lot to say about the whole cancer metaphor. I also have a lot to say about the stuff that kind of bugs me about the film. Okay. But, Can't yeah. I dive in. Yeah, but... So, before we dive into the movie, I just want to talk about the book for a second and how this movie is is a very different from the book yes. in, in a lot of ways. In, in a sense, they, they kind of, Alex Garland kind of adapted the, the skeleton of the book in a way, but yeah. completely changed certain plot threads, characters, events, and he added a bunch. I think the, two, the stuff that Alex Garland added is actually better than the book, mm. um, and it elevates the material. So... Yeah. Uh, well, well, yeah. Let's let's go into the book a little bit. So yeah. there are a few things that I'm not sure if we mentioned that should be. So first of all, the book was written by Jeff Vandermeer. It came out in 2014, and it's actually a trilogy that came out at the same time. Yeah. And it should be mentioned that I only read the first book. Danny has read all three, but I believe the movie is only based on the first one. Correct. Right. Okay. Well, it's. 
uh, let me amend that. It's based on the first one, and when Alex Garland was writing the script, Jeff Vandermeer had only released the first book. They, they came out all in uh, 2014, mm -hmm. like around the same time. But when Alex Garland was in pre-production, he had the first book to work on, and he had the outlines for the second two books. A couple of details from the second two books he added in this movie oh, that you don't learn. But it's like little tiny details. But yeah, it's basically, it's mostly based on the first. What are those details, if you don't mind sharing? One of them is that Ventress, who's in the book, is all the characters are unnamed. So the Ventress is the psychologist. So, right, yeah. Yeah, and you learn in the second book that she had cancer. You don't even learn that in the first book that right. she went in because she had cancer. And then you also learn it's, you you just learn more about Area X, which in the movie, Area X is the facility that's monitoring the shimmer. The shimmer right. is complete is a term that the movie used right. for the area. You just learn more details about oh, okay. that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so I think if we want to take a really broad approach to the book, I, well, the first thing that I wrote down probably 10 pages in was, I feel uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's a very ethereal, strange book mm -hmm. to approach from any angle. And, and I'm not used to, it should be mentioned too, that I am not a huge sci-fi reader. I like things that are maybe a little more like classic sci-fi, like do dream, do androids dream of electric sheep. But so this was very new to me. I don't read a lot of contemporary sci-fi. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of interesting to step into this. I felt very bewildered, which I think is exactly where you're supposed to come at it from the character's point of view as well. Like you sort of step into this in the middle of things. And there's a literary term for that in media res which is right where the book starts. So you you begin the book right as the psychologist, the biologist, the archaeologist, and the... Biologist, did you say? Biologist. Yeah, who's the... Yeah, who's the main lean, character. Yeah. They all have sort of woken up from a trance-like situation into Area X, and they're trying to gain their footing and trying to figure out where they are and orient themselves in this area. And that is very, very well introduced to the reader. Yeah. I mean, Where you're like, what's you're just going on? thrown yeah. right in. Yeah. And then as I started reading, one of the next things that I specifically wrote down is like, this is a very metaphorical book. And of course, one of the first things that we learn as the expedition comes across what the biologist calls the tower or the tunnel is that there is this creature that's sort of writing on the walls of the tower mm, as you creepy. walk in. Yeah. And this is where I'm going with that. So anytime you're reading a book and you come across sort of human interaction with writing, it's very, very symbolic. And it's very yeah. rooted in the idea of, you know, the author uncovering things in their subconscious that they want to bring out into their writing and make you know, conscious and pull out and have things be natural, but also have things structured to the point where you have, you know, usually a beginning, middle and end. So when I saw that there was literally this idea of like the writings on the wall, 
that's sort of where my analysis started going. I was like, okay, this is about like self-discovery and the artist's struggle to make things organically. So, and in the book that actually is how the writing is described, like there are organic organisms that are forming this writing. Yeah. And <laughs> I think past that, that's kind of where my analysis stops. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's about like, you know, self-discovery and trying to make a story out of your subconscious and pulling that into your conscious so that you can write it down and have it organic, but also creating a structure. But I think kind of what Jeff Vandermeer is saying with this book is like, sometimes there isn't a structure. And sometimes those stories that you want to have a beginning, middle, and end have more meaning if you take that away. Right. That's kind of how I ended up interpreting that. That's perfect. And that's, you know, I I agree with you. And that both makes the book profound, but also really frustrating because (laughs) you're expecting to just read a story, like a sci-fi story, but it's not that at all. Right. It's more reminiscent to... A mem- like a memory. Right, yeah, a very... And I actually really like that the movie uses the word the shimmer because it's like in the book while you're reading it, you have these like glimmers of reality and these like glimmers of memories and it's kind of... But it's literally seen through this like shimmery kind of weird veil that you can't quite strip right. from your eyes, you know? And even in the movie, there's that imagery of it's kind of like an oil spill, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like it's like you can't quite under like it's like a film over your eyes. Which which later comes back in that when you learn that uh, the shimmer is uh, basically a prism which refra- refracts mm-hmm. light, kind of you know also how in the like movie, right. right in the yeah. movie about how you know that's what gives it its look because it's kind of refracting light or mm-hmm. you know how like oil and water how you, you, when you see it with light it creates that rainbow effect mm-hmm. so it's really cool yeah. yeah you don't learn in this book that the center of area x what's causing the shimmer to be the shimmer um is an alien force right. until uh the third book of jeff vandermeer's trilogy that's another thing that oh. alex garland brings over although it kind of seems the the alien entities are couldn't be more different and in um the movie where it's kind of represented as this this ever-changing glowing tumor if you Mm -hmm. will um in the book it's more of a a, more of a blob that takes over this uh the lighthouse keeper Mm -hmm. which you you see his picture in the first book and you don't learn about this guy and what has happened to him into the third book okay um but you realize that some in the first book that something alien is going on, but at the same time, you know, everything looks normal in Area X, but the characters also understand that something is going on. They just, some characters can't see it mm-hmm. and they can't comprehend it. And what I really appreciated about the book is that, and the trilogy, is that it's kind of, I think Jeff Vandermeer described really describes kind of what an actual alien encounter would be or kind of this this alien terraforming if you will would Mm -hmm. be because alien by its very definition you know is is unrecognizable right it's not it's alien to you you Mm -hmm. can't really understand what's going on you don't necessarily see it even if it's happening right 
in front of you because you have no reference for that. Mm-hmm. There's some force in the shimmer in area X that's changing and you know, Lena, the biologist can see it. She's seeing a you know, she sees a tunnel but everyone else sees a tower mm-hmm. and you're you're not really sure which one it is, mm-hmm. but you just know that something's there. So it's kind of a cool experiment of like what if like like what would alien activity really look like in, in this case? It would be like things would look the same but at the same time it's completely different. Like another thing that the book and the movie share is that the biologist Lena, she sees a dolphin with a, a human eye right. kind of and uh, that that reflects the what the movie's doing with having all the DNA kind of be refracted and switching mm-hmm. of like animals meshing with other you know, species and same with the mm-hmm. plants and the flora mm-hmm. and all that stuff. So, yeah, I can't say that, again, it's really tough to recommend the book and especially tough to rec- recommend the trilogy because I really love Annihilation because it's so, it's like a dream and so intense and... Fever dream. Yeah, a fever <laughs> dream and so intense. And I love the third book because you start to get answers, finally. Mm-hmm. The middle book is a real drag it's a real slog to get through it's the longest one it starts off really great because the ending of the book of the first book is is the biologist deciding to stay in area x right and the beginning of the second book um authority is lena coming out of the shimmer Hmm. but you don't know if it is lena so that's another idea that the movie takes is maybe there's a double mm, th- that's coming that out yeah idea, so yeah. you think so it's the second book starts off so great but i describe the second book as just one big long tease it's 300 pages of nothing and then nice. the last 30 pages is great but it doesn't make up for all that then the third book is great so honestly i don't recommend the trilogy of books Maybe, maybe read the first one if you just want to see how it's different from the movie, but mm. yeah. Well, how about the movie? Do you want to take a broad approach to the movie analysis? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I have some stuff written down. So through dialogue, you can tell that a lot of the movie is about, you know, self-destruction, right? Yeah. Like, like what was your, like, what, kind of what, did you have a take on that at all of, mm-hmm. of what the movie was saying? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've figured that out. It's it's kind of weird. It's like you you have to take a step back to understand anything from the book and the movie. You have to take a huge step back and and start looking at things really literally to start understanding what it means metaphorically. So, like I said earlier, when I took a huge step back from the book, I was literally able to put something into terms like, quote unquote, like the writings on the wall, right? And that sort of led me down the path of the artist's struggle to create something. And with this movie, I was taking a huge step back again and literally trying to figure out where this was going because Danny had sort of primed me to know that it was very different from the book. And I think really quickly I started picking up the cancer references and I started picking up the self-destruction references from pretty much all of the characters. Like there's a really, really clear theme Mm -hmm. that all of the characters, especially the ones that go into Area X and that begins with Lena's husband, like 
there are things, they all have demons that are very different. So for example, one of them was a drug junkie. One of them has cancer, the psychologist. One of them lost a child to leukemia. And Lena at first volunteered to go into Area X because she wanted like revenge or to like finish the job. Like figure out what happened to her husband. husband. Right. So like they all have these demons that they're wrestling with. And like you said, they all seem to interpret the physical world around them differently. And I think that's sort of, that was my clue about all of these people have different things going on. And so they're trying to handle them and, and deal with them, but not necessarily heal. Yeah. Right. Like that's kind of the thing. Like they're all very touchy. Like they're all very tightly wound and they all seem to be like not really working together as a team so much as they're for very selfish reasons. Right. So that's sort of where I started getting the self-destruction. Like they're there for themselves. And like maybe they started this journey to try to find something, but probably not. Like they went there knowing that a lot of people don't come out or, or nobody has come out right. on and, record. And, you know, it ties into the line that Ventress says that most people don't commit suicide. Most people self-destruct in some way or another. And going into the Shimmer is a suicide mission, but it's not, they're not committing suicide by going in, right? Because there's a chance that something will happen, right? right. The, these are people on, on the edge, right? And have, have these darknesses in them. But for some reason or another, whether it's to find meaning or to, or to let go, yeah. Or, or entering. So I really appreciated that um, part of of the film that, you know, you have these really complex female mm-hmm. characters as well. That's a similarity that the movie holds to the book. In, in the book, it's four women who enter, and then in the movie, it's five. Uh, you learn in the second book of the Southern Reach trilogy that it was, it was initially going to be five women, but one woman dropped out for you know plot reasons but well people drop out in the book because they're like killed or they die like right way quicker than the movie <laughs> and in the book like the first morning the anthropology is or the anthropologist is killed right and they're, mo- they're and most people off die off screen too in the book uh-huh. or in the movie you see um a lot of most of it um but yeah i had yeah. to look away for some part. right yeah i said i said you shouldn't look during this part but yeah and then and then in the book the uh the shimmer wall is uh invisible i think alex garland made the very wise and cinematic decision to make the outside wall this you know shiny translucent ooze hanging in the air right you have to make something visual right and it has a sound i i think i think that was the right decision to go to make it this actual physical thing you can see it's very very cool uh, image for sure but here let's get into what i've been we've been alluding this whole time of of my uh my cancer analysis yeah. of of the movie so basically going off of what matt goldberg had said this kind of log line of what if the earth got cancer mm-hmm. it's kind of right off the bat you know the opening meteor that kind of bursts through the sky mm-hmm. At first, the meteor looks like the cancer cell that Lena was just looking at through the microscope, kind of the circular circular thing 
that um, mm-hmm. on the outside it, it's moving, and then you, the camera pans out, and you see it's a, a meteor um, that's going. It strikes the lighthouse, the lighthouse, and that's kind of you know that unexplained phenomenon is a good stand-in for you know how cancer. Everything is normal, and then it's not, and that place is, and then in that place that where it's where the thing striked, it, it, it starts mutating and, and like the shimmer expanding, mm-hmm. right? And um, once Lena and the team are inside the sh- shimmer, they start noticing mutations and these mutations are stand, you know, stand in for, for cancer. They see it in the actual physical landscape mm-hmm. um, on the walls with that kind of like bubbling um, malignant you know tumors that are kind mm-hmm. of all over it and then with the body who you know they that was yeah. up against the pool wall who like it kind of this something expanded out from his stomach like like a cancer cell and then at the end the the very heart of the shimmer is the the alien like i said before is a, a tumor like it couldn't yeah. be more it couldn't look more like one uh, affecting all the cells around it uh, growing forever growing changing right not necessarily destroying but just changing and there's that great line where uh, tessa thompson's character uh, she was noting of a ventress saying that she she wants to face it I meaning she wants to face this threat and lena wants to fight but but she chooses to just accept it and that's kind of you know a way that shows you all the different ways people kind of deal with mm-hmm. cancer especially when you're knocking on death's door some people go violently and some people face it and and beat it like mm-hmm. lena does and some people like tessa thompson slip away beautifully kind of this just quiet affair and there's no single kind of of cancer death Mm -hmm. i think is what alex garland Mm -hmm. is trying to say and of the really grim side the character who lost a daughter she goes really really violently Mm -hmm. and kind of goes screaming and that part of her screaming lives on in this in this monster and that's another unfortunate right, the bear monster yeah thing. the the scream <laughs> scream bear um yeah the rotting zombie scream bear <laughs> what a what a nightmare i'll tell you that much which is not in the book it's at really all hard to watch. oh what i mean it, it is incredible really it is what an incredible design right a creation from the the, yeah, admit, the dastardly the, mind yeah, of alex cool. garland yeah. it, it is cool but Same like thing. haunting yeah. like oh, a, yeah. a bear with a human scream well yeah and also its face is falling off and the skeleton of its face is a, a demon right. <laughs> that wants to eat your face also and yeah and and that's the thing you know, everything in, in the shimmer is metastasizing and changing. And we get, yeah. we get plenty of shots of cells dividing. And the lighthouse itself, which is kind of the epicenter of the mm-hmm. whole shimmer, ha- has grown reminiscent of, of a tumor with, mm-hmm. these, with these lumps all, all around it and kind of protruding from it. it it's very, very ugly and, and alien, but that is also a statement on cancer itself too it is both alien but it's also like ourselves it's literally exactly. it's yeah. literally our body attacking itself which is shown literally in the movie when when the alien tumor thing gets a droplet of lena's blood and becomes yeah. lena and that like literally attacks itself right. it's shown like a visual representation of mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. 
And, you know, it's like we tend to only get, it seems like, one kind of cancer movie, which is about like an individual can- cancer p- patient. And, you know, that's, it's dramatic and tear-jerking and, and re- relatable, sadly relatable, to a lot of people who have mm-hmm. seen friends and family stricken with the with the disease i mean my god my that's that's how right. my my grandpa passed away and and i it, it's just kind of a haunting thing that we all we all deal with but i think what makes the movie annihilation special is that you know it wants to confront the cold and uncaring horror of mm-hmm. it all it's not it's not trying to sugarcoat anything. It's it's really, in, you know, the Scream Bear isn't <laughs> isn't just a horrifying creation, you know, that can rip you apart. But it also stands for you know that fear of how people can remember you dying or how you think mm-hmm. you can die from it. But it's also, but also at the same time with Lena beating the Shimmer, if you will, mm-hmm. it, it shows some hope that like, yes. Cancer is this destructive, ever-changing force, but, you know, it is not um, an Mm end-all, be-all. Getting cancer doesn't necessarily mean that you're done for. Mm -hmm. There are certainly ways, especially in in today's world uh, and the time we live in, I mean, thank God, there there are more uh, medicines and procedures and Mm -hmm. chemo that you can go... So you you can survive which mm-hmm. is kind of the which is why I, I really appreciate the movie more and i'm so thankful that i listened to matt goldberg's analysis because it's like yeah it's the movie's great because it's both an unflinching look at cancer but also there's an optimistic view there well, there's too a, yeah there's a great scientific approach and something that i wrote down when we started the movie was that it kind of reminds me of arrival in a lot of ways mm. because There's obviously this external something that the government has found out exists and they don't know how to approach it. So they seek the top scientific people in multiple disciplines to come together and try to figure out how to beat it or how to overcome it. And Lena in particular really reminds me of Louise because they are very disciplined but they try to come at things at a different angle and i think like that's what a lot of people try to do when you think about cancer either to treat it or to cure it if that's possible or to handle it if you have it like there are a lot of really scientific approaches but then at the same time like if you strip that away a lot of times like the movie really makes you face the emotional aspects of it too and like no matter how clinical you get about the cancer and the cancer cells there ultimately will have to be a showdown with the emotional aspect as well right and like that's really well visually described in the movie obviously with the climax where lena having to face her doppelganger ish Mm -hmm. mimic That's a very emotional scene, and I think that's, like, a really good way of showing that she eventually has to struggle internally with herself and, like, all the things that have sort of built up in her about her husband and about herself, and, you know, like, there there are a lot of times where, like, she's holding herself back, or, like, the mimic is, like, holding her back. 
Right. And that's something that she has to overcome before eventually sort of coming to terms with it. Like, I think if we're going to analyze the movie as a metaphor for having cancer, then I think the end is... There's a question of, like, did her and her husband make it out of the shimmer as the doppelgangers or as themselves? And there's that little flicker in the eye right before the movie ends. Right. And I think, again, if we're going to analyze this as a metaphor for dealing with cancer, I think that kind of is a metaphor of coming out on the other side and being healthy and beating it, but still having to live with right the fallout and also the understanding that it might come back. Right. The experience is still with you. And mm-hmm. yeah, it might come back. Like, exactly. I think that's a beautiful analysis. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I've always interpreted it as Oscar Isaac Kane. He's clearly the doppelganger because right, you see sure. you see it you see the original self light a phosphorus grenade Which on was camera. So really hard to watch. That was awful. It, it was a quick like flash. It wasn't too care. graphic. It was very the scary. other parts and were graphic. I had nightmares about oh, the yeah. movie. So. I, I did too. I'm sorry, <laughs> but <laughs> um, but then I had always just assumed that you know the first two times I watched it that the Lena at the end was the original Lena, but then this third time I watched it was the first time I thought that, oh, maybe there's another doppelganger that came mm-hmm. out. Uh, or maybe, or or that maybe that Lena is like half changed and, you know, half of her is, is the doppelganger and half isn't still maintaining that, you know, metaphor mm-hmm. for the cancer is still, you know, the experience is still with you in some parts. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, that's the beauty of the open-ended nature I mean, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I really like when movies end in a in an ambiguous way, which is kind of what I think the book is trying to say. Like, a lot of times stories that don't have perfect endings or even perfect middles or beginnings are the closest to reality because you don't get those answers in life. Right. And I really like books like that. I and and movies and yeah. you know TV shows and all that stuff like I really like when they end like that. And yeah, you had mentioned that you know the ending was akin and similar to the feeling of 2001 yeah. Space Odyssey which I agree with and Jeff Vandermeer agrees with you. This is a quote from <gasps> really? him. You know, he has chimed in on the movie and he was in a close collaboration with Alex Garland in the making of the movie. Um, He called the movie so mind-blowing and in some ways different from the book that it seems to be the kind of ending that, like 2001 or something like that, people will be talking about around the water cooler for years. Couldn't agree more, Mm -hmm. Jeff. Yeah, the ending, it's ambitious. It's certainly, you know, bravura in that it's a bravura finale, one that represents a huge departure from the source material because none of that is even in the third book when you realize that it's this kind of alien entity um it's the interaction is like couldn't be more different but that that ending i mean talk about mesmerizing especially with the score by um ben salisbury and jeff barrow Uh, i had to look up their names there they're uh, frequent collaborators with alice garland they did the score for ex machina which is amazing and also the score for devs which just Mm -hmm. totally slaps Um, (laughs) it yeah i mean it's that score just puts you what you're saying earlier that the book does in this sense of unease it's like what it's the score itself is alien and like 
futuristic, but also it has some like kind of like gospel choir to it and kind of this like ominous vocal. Very unique. Yeah, yeah. very unique. And once you once I realized what was going on with that this doppelganger alien was wasn't a wasn't actually attacking uh lena was actually mimicking mm-hmm. that's when i'm like oh wow this is like really cool and mm-hmm. and unique mm-hmm. and i'm i was on the edge of my seat wondering like what was going to happen because it's a threat to lena in the sense that you know it's an alien who's trying to be be her become her mm-hmm. but as lena says later you know, she doesn't even know if the alien was aware that she was there. Like, she doesn't even know if the alien wants anything. Mm-hmm. All she knows is that it it refracts and copies. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, you, you just, that's the type of, of unknown that really is thought-provoking and puts you on the edge of your seat and you just really don't know how she's going to get out of the situation and how she ultimately ends up thwarting this creature by you know lighting off the grenade in its hand and having Mm -hmm. it copy the deadly you know flames i thought that was like really really awesome and a great uh great writing from alex garland Mm -hmm. um which i think you know really elevates the book and and it's and and honestly is better than the ending you know, of the Southern Reach trilogy of how all things go down, too. But Well, but- the way that it destroys itself, too, goes back to what we were talking about regarding self-destruction, because right. I think Lena figures that out, that it only mimics, or, like, it only can mimic what's around it. And so, yeah, I don't know if that's how the movie is supposed to be interpreted, but I think it's really smart to have it self-destruct by mimicking the fire and like the explosions yeah that's definitely pretty smart but let's talk about some more and unless you have some more um analysis of the movie no i want to talk some more about the differences between the book and the movie and boy are there a lot so like we're saying earlier the base premise of a group of women going into area x that's the same. But in the book, uh, some people had come back as shells of their formal, mm-hmm. former self. Some people had, uh, some whole crews had, you know, committed suicides. You know, right, only a few. Suicide, yeah. yeah. Um, and then in the book, the group of women are the 12th expedition. But mm-hmm. in the movie, it's, it's uh, they're not necessarily, I don't think it's ever said that they're the 12th. Right. Well, yeah, in the book, they're lied to kind of because lena realizes that they're maybe like the 300th or something but the government hasn't been honest about it yep and that's and you learn later on in the trilogy that yeah they may or may not be the 12th the actual 12th yeah like the the second book deals a lot with kind of the bureaucracy of the southern reach and you get into that whole like Hmm. yeah the whole government lying to you aspect of Mm. it which yeah, you think would be like, interesting, but it's it not. seems there's an external manipulation angle to the book a lot more. I think there's like there's no mention of the hypnotism that the psychologist puts them under. Yeah, in the movie. In the movie. No, yeah. And that happens in the book, which is like really creepy because you find out that the psychologist is kind of a plant or like a sleeper cell. Yeah. Because she's able to activate that memory wipe sort of situation where she'll say a phrase and one of them is like 
gosh, they're all really creepy because yeah. Lena figures out because she inhales some of the spores that are in the tower. She finds out that she's immune, immune to, to yeah. the hypnotism. And so she starts hearing these lines that the psychologist has prepared them for. And they're all really creepy. Like I said, I can't pull it up right now, but like risk to the risk for the reward or something like that is one of yeah. them it's really they're really creepy that's not in the book and you kind of get the feeling that the psychologist is maybe a little more knowledgeable than the rest of the group but not manipulating them yeah. and and in the book too the psychologist literally murders i think like two of them and tries to murder the biologist but doesn't succeed and is ended up murdered by whatever is happening in area x because she can't succeed it's like really creepy there's like, right. there's like a, a lot of like manipulation in the book that's not reflected in the movie right yeah in the book the psychologist murders the anthropologist by inducing her with with hypnotism and making her confront the uh-huh. crawler right which is in the movie uh, so in the book the crawler is whatever this alien creature this indeterminate alien creature is where in the book the actual alien is the, this tumor thing, but then there's also the scream bear, which is mm-hmm. a refraction in the in the shimmer of a bear and a human and and other creatures. But so yeah, there's none of that of that kind of hypnotism in there, and there's also in the movie there's no uh, the text on the wall because because right. that because that comes from the crawler, and then like I said, the crawler is a different entity. Um, yeah, which in the makes movie. sense. Like I I think as as soon as I started understanding why the movie was a lot different, was a lot more different than the book, it started to make a little more sense. Like, I think it's a lot more relatable to most people to come into contact and have to face the consequences of cancer rather than maybe what the book is trying to say, you know, what the artist has to struggle with and come face to face with, you know, with their ideas and having things be organic and natural and reflecting the real world, but also be, you know, structured in the way that a story is. Like, I I think that makes sense that he would want to make something a little bit more relatable. But does that happen in the movie? Like, I don't know. I don't know if a lot of people, unless you do a lot of digging, I don't know if you would walk out of the movie theater feeling like you've related to the story. What do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, I think you can relate to the the self-destruction angle of it, certainly. Sure, with Because yeah. another difference between the book and the movie, um, in the book, there's no Lena-Dan uh, affair, because th- that's mm-hmm. the big reason that Lena goes into the Shimmer in the first place, because she says she owes her husband, like she mm-hmm. owes Cain, who, who's dying. And you learn later that owing comes from her guilt from cheating on her husband, mm-hmm. which she, which is revealed through a flashback. That's which I remember you gasping on that. That that was a pretty. Right, that's that was pretty. A, yeah, it's a great reveal. It's very. It's framed when you know the shot starts on her as she's having sex, and you just see her. But then you it pans down to Dan, who's who's not Oscar Isaac, and you're like, oh. And then she later reveals that he knew about the affair, found out about the affair, and then you kind of put the pieces together of, like, that's why he went into the shimmer, basically committing a quote-unquote suicide mission. Right. Is because, you know, he had had this... He was so hurt and felt so much pain from 
this kind of betrayal that he kind of self-destructs in a way too and again it's not it's different from committing suicide because there's that unknown factor of you, you no one knows what area x is you know no one really knows what will happen if you kind of self-destruct right you know the the degree in which you self-destruct how you do it is mm-hmm. is really is really unknown but i think I think we all can kind of relate to that of just of being hit with news or or being in a slump in your life for some whatever reason and just Mm -hmm. kind of of you know consciously just making it worse for yourself for sure I think we can agree with that and and like I was saying earlier I think you know in one way or another I think we all can relate to the you know the the cancer journey of Mm -hmm. it too so I do think it's it's very relatable but I, I do like the addition of of the fact that that lena you know cheated on her husband because one it shows that you know she's a complex character it, mm-hmm. it's very i think it's very brave to make your main character uh, an, an adulterer mm-hmm. but at the same time it's at the end of her affair right is when the movie starts and you realize that she's it's a redemption arc, right? Mm-hmm. She knows she's going into the shimmer as a way to both save her husband, but also to kind of redeem herself because it's either I go into the shimmer and survive and I figure out what's wrong with my husband or I go into the shimmer and I die and then my husband dies at a, at a, right. a certain time, right? So I, I think that's, it, it's dark. It's certainly very, <laughs> it's certainly very heavy and to think about that stuff. Yeah. Um, and I'm not trying to make light of, of self-destruction or suicidal ideation, but I, I do think it's, this is a very interesting, thought-provoking way to approach those two topics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, like I said, the whole ending is completely different. Um, in the movie, these characters get names. Um, mm-hmm. You know, their whole journey from place to place, it's all different. You know, in the book, they don't get confronted with the alligator. Mm-hmm. They don't... It's never really, actually in the book, it's never really implicitly stated that, you know, the actual landscapes are like morphing and refracting. You know, you get that one shot, you get that one description about the dolphin with the human Mm -hmm. eye, but, but. Well, there's the, the humanoid plants are in the book oh okay they're like it's oh, the right, lichen right. Yeah. it's kind of like a shadow like a lichen shadow yes rather than the vines that literally look like a human form which right. i thought was a really cool visualization yeah. of what's in the book but yeah there isn't the one-to-one comparison of like yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it's, it's much, hard to describe it's much it's, more subtle yeah and and i should it should be stated that i saw the movie first and then read the books mm-hmm. so i kind of went into the books already knowing having this idea of like what kind of jeff vandermeer was trying to say in in a sense so i i actually couldn't even imagine recommending these books Jeff Vandermeer's books to anyone who hasn't even seen the movie because like with no frame of reference at all. Well, that's how I went in. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So I actually, that's the thing. It's, it's, it sounds like I really don't like the book. I really appreciate it. But at the same time, it's just, you know, I, I'd feel really, really bad recommending this to someone and them hating it and them being like, well, yeah, that's kind of what it was going for in its style. So Uh yeah. Yeah. I mean, all the differences we mentioned, that basically is like, on a plot standpoint, makes it for a completely different story. Yeah, completely. I 
went in knowing like you had prepared me for the fact that it was going to be completely different from the book. And you do get the same feeling. There's definitely that tone. There's this like really heavy tone of self-destruction and sadness and I think lack of options that the people on the expedition feel. But other than that, yeah, it's completely different with the whole end game. Avengers Endgame. <laughs> Is that based on Africa? Well, basically, technically yeah. based on a comic book. That's what we're doing next. No, Ooh. no, we're not. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. But um, I kind of wanted to go into some technicals about Ooh, yeah. the movie. Let's see. Uh, the, it was shot by uh, Rob Hardy, a pretty incredible uh, cinematographer. He shot Mission Impossible Fallout. One of, number six? Yeah. My favorite movie of all time? <laughs> number six. <laughs> I love that movie. Yeah, Fallout, Fallout is great. It's probably, I think it's tied with MI3 for the best of, the, of that franchise. But I think Fallout is probably the better, objectively the better movie. But MI3 has some nostalgia factor. Uh, we're getting off topic. Yeah. Rob, Rob Hardy, yeah, uh, credible cinematographer, his his some of his shots in this movie are breathtaking mm -hmm. um yeah. and the visual effects that accompany these shots are also really cool already mentioned the score by ben salisbury Je jeff barrow it had a budget this movie had a budget of around 55 million and it made at the box office domestically 43.1 million yikes. yikes so i mean <laughs> you know What's crazy is that people demand these stories about these, like, stories that starring women about these complex um, ideas that are, you know, new ideas. And then they come out and it's like no one sees them. It's like, what the heck? Um, Interesting. And <laughs> yeah, you know, actually, sorry, I'll, I'll let you finish your thought. But I wanted to talk about that before we, I forget. I wanted to talk about what you think about making all of the expeditions gender specific. But well, finish your thought. Well, no, oh, no, I, my thought was just that. It kind of, it really points out the grim part of the movie business and that it's a business. And sometimes these kind of new complex novel ideas, sometimes they have a fan, a devoted fan following, but they don't do work at the box office. Mm -hmm. And this movie, I mean, it, it lost money. It, it made some back with its DVD, you know, Blu-ray streaming sales. But you know, it, it certainly wasn't a hit. Obviously, it didn't. It didn't lose so much money to be considered a flop. Mm -hmm. But it definitely, you know, lost money, and that it, it's a real drag because mm -hmm. I mean, a whole cast of of well, Gina Bain, Rodriguez. Right. I mean, I love Natalie Portman, but Gina Rodriguez, I love her. Fun fact: got to meet her on the set of Jane the Virgin, so and it was cool. the best day of my entire life. Over meeting Danny. Sorry. Yeah. No, <laughs> no I get it. Kidding. I get <laughs> no, it. She's amazing. I mean, as a woman, let me tell you, I would lick her feet. <laughs> and Gross. Take her to bed. Gross, but I mean, I get it. Um, yeah, I I wanted to bring up uh, her character, not Gina Rodriguez herself. Okay? okay, I'm not. This is one of the parts of the movie that bugs me a little bit. She has two lines that I think in the movie that are really laughable and awful and the internet has kind of made fun of them 
for being such. Um, okay. <laughs> the first one is after, you know, when they see that footage of uh, Oscar Isaac carving into the stomach of the guy, which, which I, I looked away. From. Yeah, I, I, that scene is genuinely like creepy, even, no. even, uh, you know, exponentially creepy by the fact that you're watching it on a video camera, like shoddily no. shot by some, yeah, it's so, kind so gross. creepy. Get out. But then afterwards of her being like, it's a trick of the light. It's a trick of oh, the light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That so, is so stupid. Dumb. <laughs> like, so, like, trick of the light. What does that even mean? Yeah. It's it, it would be a trick of the light if it was like a picture, but you're looking at like a moving image. And yeah. she's like, and, and I don't think her delivery of the line either yeah. is that great. Yeah. And it, it's, it's weird for Alex Garland. Like, he, like I was saying, with a script for Ex Machina. Like, that's some of the best dialogue I've ever heard, like, in my life. And then in this movie, for these lines to come out, like, trick, I'm like, what was that? And then the other line I'm talking about is when Gina Rodriguez is like, we need to go back. We've got hella footage. Oh, don't get me started on that Oh, well, I'm about to. Okay, okay, go for it, because I'll rip into it. I'm not sure if she's supposed to be from Southern California. No, Northern Oh, nor okay, nor not as I'm. I will throw up if Got you it. think that any person from Southern California would I f- ever. I feel that like the world thinks that, but um, no, it's it's a Northern California. Gotcha. Thing. Thank it's you. Out of um, San Francisco, and it's disgusting, and no one should ever use it. I agree <laughs> with you. <laughs> it is so fucking it, awkward. I, I know, hate but that word. but when she said that in uh, when yeah, I saw it in the theater, really people. Strange laughed and it's so and again gina rodriguez's i think her line delivery of that is just so cringeworthy well, it's funny because that is a very regional thing to say it's like the other day i used the word gnarly to a co-worker and they were like what does that mean and it's like well i'm from southern california so like it's such a colloquialism that if you're trying to set a character up to be from that part of California, you have to make it very intentional. And the fact that they didn't build her, she's from Chicago. They say that she is from Chicago. Uh, and I I, again, I'm not an expert in dialect and I'm not an expert in dialogue, uh-huh. but that is a very Northern Californiaism. And so for her to just say that, but be from Chicago, it's like, what are you trying to say with that? <laughs> I wasn't. Is, where is that coming from? I wasn't even thinking about where she's from. I just think it just as a word and as a line delivered in that context of what they were doing, I think is just so uh, cringy. And yeah. I couldn't believe it came from the same guy who wrote uh, these <laughs> other movies. So, yeah, that's a little thing. And like I said, the... The pacing has fared better on my my third watch. I think it's two hours, perfect length for a movie. But of course, I think it could have gone by like a little faster. I'm talking about like cut like a few minutes, which doesn't sound like a lot, but I think actually would really work for the whole flow of the Mm -hmm. thing. And then my final criticism, Jennifer Jason Lee, I'm sure she's a great person in real life. I I don't think she's a a ventress, the psychologist. I I just this is a personal thing. I know it's me. It's not me. It's (laughs) it's not you. It's me. Movie. I I just don't think she's a good actress. I mean, she was okay in the Hateful Eight. She a lot of people. She's in Weeds too. Oh, 
Cool. Um, a, a lot of people loved her in The Hateful Eight. She got nominated for an Academy Award, but I didn't. I, I just don't see it. Uh, and yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't think she. I mean, with the right role, I'm sure she's great. But I think she was miscast for this role. I think she would have been better served in like Tessa Thompson's role. I mean, not to say that Tessa Thompson shouldn't have, shouldn't have played that role. She's great. And who's that role again? Sorry, that's the person with uh, fl- flowers growing out of her arms Got that has that right. off-screen yep. death. Yep. Yep. Valkyrie and mm-hmm. uh, right. Thor right. Ragnarok. Right. 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 She, not to say that you know Tessa Thompson shouldn't have played that role, but I don't know. I just I don't think she was really convincing in the role of this. Yeah, it just she has like a lack of like what is it? Uh, presence, like flow. Yeah, presence, but also. Like she's not dynamic. Like her right. face, like her line delivery and her facial expressions were so stony. Stilted, yeah. And stilted. Yeah. It was kind of like, do you mean anything that you say? Yeah, like and, it's kind of a weird like right. And not in a what? good way. Like yeah. a performance can be like purposefully stilted or yeah. stony, but it didn't work for this movie. So that's a real drag for me that I, kind of I, yeah, brings I, it down. I kind of felt that as well. Yeah. yeah. I'm yeah, it's weird, but yeah, but I mean, it's, I'm happy that this movie is getting a big cult following, uh, myself included, even though I just admitted that I don't fully love it, I still really appreciate it for all the reasons and for the, like, the fruitful discussion that we've had during mm-hmm. this podcast. Um, so I'm happy that, I'm happy that it's living on in some capacity. I'm happy that Alex Garland is continuing to work and he has devs who, an amazing show, it's critically acclaimed i hope that come award season that it it mm-hmm. scoops up a bunch of emmys for a limited series um yeah so i can't i'll i'll watch anything alex garland produces um jeff vandermeer he has some more books i i'm i'm probably gonna give some more of his books a shot i'll see if I'll see, you, you know, know. if they're sci-fi? Are they yeah, in the same vein? They're in the same vein, like the Lovecraftian, you know, that kind of like otherworldly mm-hmm. body morphing, kind of like ethereal dreamlike type of stories. Um, I can't confirm that. That's just what I get from all the descriptions that I read of his books. Yeah. But yeah, I'll, I'll probably give his books another shot. So, I mean. Yeah, do you want to? Wind down with some ratings and recommendations. Amen, sister. Let's do it. All right, go for it. (laughs) So here we come to the paradox of the book. I appreciate it. I really liked its whole view on like what alien encounters in like mysterious, pristine lands would be like. I appreciated the the sense of unease it was able to put me in it was very it's very creepy interesting unique book but since it's the trilogy it's in isn't really satisfying i would only recommend the first book at least to fans of like lovecraftian sci-fi i encourage you to go into the movie with the kind of themes we were talking about of self-destruction and kind of you know dealing with cancer i think the movie becomes something really profound, flawed, but certainly profound. Alex Garland's work is just so haunting. Haunting is mm-hmm. a great word for yeah. all his works. Just yeah. like it's like it's the cinematic equivalent of like a weighted blanket made out of like really interesting scientific textbooks. <laughs> what scientific textbooks? 
Wet? Yeah, it feels like damp to me. I don't know. The movie? Damp? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Did Ex Machina feel damp? Oppressive. Yeah, certainly. In a good way, in the best way. Well, Ex Machina. This one, I'm less yeah. a fan of, but... And and if you learn anything from this podcast, it's go watch Ex Machina if you haven't. <laughs> I mean, I it's so it sucks that that movie is not based off of a book because I would do that in a, in a second. Heartbeat. Yeah, what a it's what so an good. incredible piece. Also, of- fun fact. We saw Domhnall Gleeson one time at UCB in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. Which was incredible. Yeah. And he's one of my favorite actors. We talked about him actually in True Grit. Mm-hmm. I obviously didn't say anything because that's not how you approach people when you live in yeah. California or when you live in LA. But I was like, I like couldn't focus on the show because I was like, oh my God, he's it's, behind me. It's Domhnall. He's, it's Domhnall. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry, we're off track again. But how was it working with Rachel McAdams? <laughs> um, Wait, they dated. Working. Oh, okay, yeah, because she's also my like other favorite actor. Sorry, I thought you. Were you saying, would also lick her feet. <laughs> I would also lick her bum. Wow. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if that's your thing, I, we can't uh, get knock you for that. But I mean, they made about time together. And speaking of movies would, that I wish were based on books that we could talk about on this podcast, it would be yeah, that movie. Yeah, about but, time. All right, anyway. Let's get back to it. Are We've, you done recommending it? <laughs> yes, are you done talking about your really freaky kinks? All right, let's go Go ahead. I don't know. I could keep going. No, thanks. Our parents listen to this. Uh, go ahead. Okay, so I you've probably picked up throughout the whole podcast, I'm a little reticent about this book and about the movie. I understand where it's coming from. I understand where both the book and the movie, what they're trying to say. I don't think that I enjoyed those themes and the story as much just because it's not my cup of tea. Yeah. Like, it's kind of funny because simultaneously, I think I'm constantly reading a Stephen King novel, one Stephen King novel or another. And light, light reading. <laughs> a, lot of his, a lot of his books center around writing and the craft of the writer and that really gets to me because I'm not a writer at all. I don't do any creative writing. In fact, I hated creative writing when I was in college, but the way that he communicates the struggle of being an author is my cup of tea and I get it and I love it and I could talk about it all day from him. But the way that Jeff Vandermeer writes about it is just not really how I yeah. interacted well. Um, and with the movie, like, I just, I really don't take intense thematic fever dreams in well. Yeah, <laughs> like, no, I understand. Like I, I had nightmares for weeks after I saw 2001. I had nightmares after I saw this movie. It's just, it's so oppressive and the emotions are so overwhelming that it kind of gets into my subconscious and overrides it. And yeah. like, I hate to say that because it almost feels like I'm saying it's mimicking and that kind of like brings in the and that, <laughs> visualization in the movie. <laughs> that's actually a line that but... <laughs> Oscar Isaac said that his mind is oh, no. set free. <laughs> but yeah, so I get it. It's just not what I like in my... Understandable. Yeah. Yeah, the Academy didn't think so. It wasn't nominated for a single award, which, I mean, I would expect at least, like, best... The score? 
score yeah. or like VFX, but nothing. Um, yeah, there was there was one point in the movie, in fact, where there's a huge alligator that attacks one of the people, and it slides back into the river. And I was like, holy crap, that was really good. Like the yeah. the ripples in the water were really realistic. But anyway, yeah, it's. I personally don't know anybody that I would recommend this to. And I have a hard time rating it because I see what it was trying to do. And I think it was successful for people who intake things like this really well. Mm-hmm. Um, but personally, it just like wasn't my thing. So I'm going to not rate it and I'm not going to recommend it. I'm not even going to rate it. <laughs> yeah, because I feel like I'm going to give it a really low rating and that's not necessarily fair. Gotcha. Because I understand that it's successful. Yeah. In a lot of ways, it's just not my thing. So okay. I'm going to not rate it and not recommend it to anyone. But if you are more inclined toward Danny's likes and a lot of people if who you're listen more to this. twisted and dark <laughs> and want to feel something. <laughs> if you, and if you're listening to this, I'm sure that you know both of us. So if you know Danny and you think that you have very similar tastes, I think that, yeah, then you would be interested in reading this book and you've probably already seen the movie, honestly, because all of his friends are cinephiles. Yep. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Yeah. All right. Yeah, we should wrap up. What a, what a long podcast, but I had a lot to say. Derby do. Yeah. This was great. Um, <laughs> let's bring this to a close. What we got up next week? Next week we have Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice. Yes. Very. That's very oh, apt, since that's I'm something you enjoy. Ramble. Don't even even try to talk because I'm no gonna be i ta- won't <laughs> i'm I gonna won't. be talking the whole hour that's i mean <laughs> honestly a lot of my talking is rambling too so <laughs> these listeners need a new change of pace right. okay thank you so much for listening read up on pride and prejudice where in can the our meantime. listeners find us oh thank you uh you can find me on letterboxd where i post all my reviews movie reviews my handle is danny g reviews laura and guess what? We have an Instagram going. Yep. So at film is lit podcast with underscores between. So film underscore is underscore lit underscore podcast. <laughs> Sorry, I'm new to Instagram, so <laughs> I don't know. I knew one day you'd get one. Uh, she's she's held off until this time. Well, it's the podcast Instagram. It's right. not my Instagram. I, I am Instaless. Yeah. And so we'll be posting pictures and stuff of us recording and all the books that we're doing on there very soon. So look us yeah. up and follow us. And remember, we love you. We so appreciate you listening yes. to this little thing we're doing. It means a lot to us. It does. And yeah, so thanks for listening and watch something funny so you don't have nightmares tonight (laughs) i had to watch an episode of community oh and i still had nightmares an episode of community that okay i'm not gonna go into it yeah (laughs) yep let's wrap up all right have a good night Bye. bye